1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina, I'm Eric O'Lander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden, the senior China Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. We were supposed to have a guest today as we normally do on the show, but the guest uh, didn't show up at the last minute. So here we are. So I thought since there's so much going on right now in the news that you and I would go old school. I mean, you remember back in the day? I mean, this was like six, seven years ago, even eight years ago when we were doing the early days of the podcast it was just you and me just talking about two or three topics going on in the news. And so, uh, so I thought let's do a little retro show. Just the two of us kind of hash out some of the issues of the week. And we got a lot on our mind. We've been writing about it a lot. And uh, hopefully we'll get our guest who was supposed to be on the show. We'll get them for another day. So you good with that? Yes.
2: We'll have a quick little lightning, lightning round of, 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 China topics, China-Africa topics hitting the headlines.
1: Yeah, that's a good way. A lightning round, we'll call it that. So we're going to talk about three issues today. Uh, One is going to be the United Nations General Assembly and the speeches that took place last week in New York. We're not actually going to talk about the speeches too much. We mentioned that in our last week's show with uh, Xi's speech on coal and also the Biden speech, but rather the fact that Uh, All of these African heads of state were in the United States, and we're going to talk about the diplomacy of what happened there. Then we're also going to talk about uh, the new trade expo. The second China-Africa trade expo is underway in the central Chinese province of Hunan and Changsha. Uh, That's underway all this week. That is a very interesting development. And finally, because we have just been obsessed with the DRC, we have to talk about some of the latest events in what's going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Okay, let's talk about UNGA. That's the UN General Assembly. The 76th Assembly was convened in New York at the United Nations last week. And there was just a remarkable phenomenon, Cobus, And I was super surprised by the fact that you had all of these African heads of state and Joe Biden did not take five minutes to meet a single African heads of state not one Hishilema was in the building I think I mean he was meeting with Kamala Harris the vice president he met with Samantha Power but I just I I I just find this so weird to me that the that the Americans have said that confronting China and engaging Africa is a priority and the fact is is that that American leaders have struggled to engage Africa in Africa. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has yet to go to sub-Saharan Africa. Biden has not gone himself, obviously the pandemic being an issue there, but Biden has not really done much in Africa. And there was supposed to be this new change after Trump, because Trump famously said he doesn't care about Africa, s holes, Nambia, you know, all of that fiasco. So we thought we were going to get something different here. And then there was this opportunity specifically with the new Zambian president, who won this, this election on the backs of voters from young people and in just this enthusiasm. This is the pro-democracy message that the Americans have been promoting. And he comes to Washington to meet with the IMF and the World Bank and with American officials. And Biden didn't show. Did it surprise you as much as it surprised me? Because I, I, online, I think I was
2: definitely in the minority. I wasn't really surprised, but I also didn't think it was a good idea. <laughs> it's, um, you know, I, I it was interesting that um, it, there was an interesting kind of like like little little data point that came out in all of the coverage. One is that you know as the, you know Kamala Harris met with with Ishilema, as you mentioned, and then it also came out that she, that she did pre meetings with some of their, their kind of with with people People like Narendra Modi from from India in preparation for Biden's meeting. So so they managed to fit in double meetings with some leaders and then no meetings with others. So you know that that was very interesting. It also happened during time when um, you know it was it's interesting to see the overlap between on the one hand the fact of no meetings and then also very few of them and then also the fact that all of these African leaders one after the other was were talking about vaccine apartheid um, at, at in in their speeches at the at the General Assembly like you know kind of like. Hitting the point of of that how few kind of vaccines actually arriving in Africa I think around four percent of African populations have been have been vac- vaccinated, so that was notable I think you know kind of even as these these leaders were kind of pointing out this disparity they couldn't even point point it out in person to an American leader.
1: So the Lusaka Times newspaper issued a report and they were the only one on this. And I'm not sure if this is actually the, the story, but this is one of the stories that was floating out there that apparently the Biden administration had planned to arrange a meeting between Hishilema and Biden. But because Hishilema said he will not renounce some of the Edgar Lungu administration era uh, measures against LGBT issues that Biden pulled out because of the LGBT issue. That is what Lusaka Times was reporting. And this brings up this question of the values-led foreign policy that the United States talks so much about. So here are the competing values. On one hand, LGBT is a really important issue uh, for the Biden administration and for Democrats in general. And then at the same time, democracy promotion is another important value. And then at the third one is confronting China. Which of these values wins when they come together? And it appears that the LGBTQ issue was the winning one if the Lusaka Times article is to be trusted and is correct. I have not had any confirmation from anybody in Washington that is in fact the case, but that's what at least one line of thought is as to why Hushuleme didn't meet with Biden. yeah,
2: it's, uh, yeah this is an, an interesting an interesting theory. It'll be interesting to see if, if it's if it's really true. The um you know, I, I tend to think that, that LGBT issues provides an interesting, you know, space. To explore with with African leaders, particularly because you know it's 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 a space where, where where Africa and China seems to be quite on the same page. You know, kind of they're like, super homophobic in Africa and super homophobic in China. So you know, um, as an LGBT person myself, you know, kind of I'm like, you know what, thanks Biden. You know, but at this big because Zambia has been particularly hateful. You know, kind of in 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 the way that it t- treats its domestic LGBT community. At the same time, in the larger geopolitical political um, you know arena I can see that that there might they may be you know it, it may be time to, to to find different ways of exploring the same issue you know kind of an, and, and trying trying to kind of find kind of like spaces of overlap.
1: But what I don't understand is let's assume that the LGBTQ issue was the reason why Biden didn't want to have the face to face. What I don't understand is why he didn't use it as an opportunity to do the photo op with Hishilema and say, listen, we disagree on this issue of LGBTQ issues, but we are here to engage with the new government. We are here to support the young people who voted for him. So we will have our disagreements because any healthy geopolitical relationship is not all rainbows and sunshine, right? Yeah. And still he would have given Hishulema a boost back home by being on the front pages with the US president. Instead, he's with Kamala Harris. And just to me, Again, I just find it disrespectful at the end of the day that visiting heads of state deserve to be seen by their counterparts. And I wrote on Twitter that I said it is a 100% certainty that had there been a, let's say, an AIIB meeting or some kind of meeting in Beijing and all of those leaders were there, I guarantee you that they would have lined up those leaders one by one by one for five-minute photo ops with Xi. 100%. No doubt that in my mind that they did that. And I just think that they give up these really easy optical wins to the Chinese when they do stuff like this. I I just, Um, you know, again, I'm perplexed by it.
2: I mean, I could imagine that there's that there's a, a kind of complex discussion of optics um, going on behind the scenes. You know, kind of around around the issue of, of who Biden is photographed, you know, shaking hands with, and you know, kind of who is you know the the you know trying to not get photo ops that could be used against him in the future. I, you know, I, I can imagine a kind of a complex kind of calculus going on in the background. At the same time, I agree with you that that the that the optics of of just being of 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 having Biden be physically present you know kind of really does count for a lot and the Chinese have managed to do it I mean everyone knows that, 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 that these Chinese photo ops don't really amount to anything substantive you know but they, they, they are this kind of very powerful signal particularly on the African side particularly on the African press side um, you know and, and so, so a kind of a, even a kind of Obama era kind of like pulling together a bunch of African leaders and having a kind of a joint kind of moment with them you know would, would probably have been useful um it it does seem to indicate a a kind of that africa is pretty down on that list of priorities i think
1: but that's what trump did when he did his famous nambia speech that was at a meeting of african leaders in new york for for the un i mean he you know so in that sense he did do it at least trump got everybody together i still find the group meetings to be somewhat weird too and and listen at least his got to speak with the vice president Muhammadu Bahari from Nigeria was in New York and just got Linda Thomas-Greenfield. I mean, it's just crazy to me. And then Secretary Blinken met with Felix Chessicati, but it looks like the meeting with Felix Chessicati was more as the Congolese president's role as the chair of the African Union than it was as the president of the DRC. And if you look at the pictures of the meeting, it was not a private meeting. There were a lot of aides around. It looks like they spoke in broad platitudes. The readout uh, from the State Department focused mostly on African Union issues, on COVID, security. You know, it was very, very broad. So people were asking, well, did they talk about the Chinese loan issues for the mining contracts. And no, probably not. And that was not mentioned in any of the the coverage of it. And it doesn't look like that would have been the venue uh, that he did. And it was a two-paragraph readout from the State Department. So my guess is it was a pretty quick meeting that happened. But that was the extent of it. So Kamala Harris spoke with the Ghanaian president, the Zambian president, the Chesa spoke with the Secretary of State, and Buhari spoke with Linda Thomas-Greenfield at the UN. That was the extent of it. To me, this was a blown opportunity on the part of the U.S. Just easy. They missed this one.
2: I mean, I have a, I have a lot of sympathy because, it, you know, kind of if, if one, like I, I can just imagine what a nightmare it must be to schedule meetings between American officials and all of these people arriving for an entire U.N. General Assembly. On the other hand, in relation to Africa, I agree with you. I think it was a big a big blown opportunity that they could they could have really, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, optically they should have gone with a, a meeting with Hishilema, they should have had a quick face-to-face with Bukhari. They should have, I mean, they, there's a couple geopolitically important ones that they do, specifically if their intent is to confront China. Now, let's remember that last Friday, Biden did meet with the leaders of the Quad. And again, all focusing on what were the two topics? Infrastructure and China. So, again, it's just, I I guess I don't understand it. Maybe people in Washington know it better than I do. Very quickly, before we move on to our next topic, I want to kind of come back to this question of the values led foreign policy. And let's quickly talk about Ethiopia because Biden signed an executive order that authorizes him to implement targeted sanctions against Ethiopian leaders. This is a very common tactic that the United States is using now. It's not sanctions against an entire country, but against specific leaders. They've done it around Putin's crew, they've done it, uh, in China with with folks there related to Xinjiang. So this is a a tactic they use. It pissed off Abayi to no end. He wrote a two-page single-spaced letter that he published on Twitter saying how surprised he was, how disappointed he was that the United States and Ethiopia have been partners in the war on terror. And it just gives an opening to the Chinese who are now stepping up at the United Nations and from the podium at the Chinese Foreign Ministry to really hit the United States quite hard. And I guess the question that I have, and you, you and I are on the same this, so I'm not asking you, this is a rhetorical question. Given the fact that these sanctions are so targeted, okay, they're not going to have any meaningful impact on the outcome of the war in Ethiopia, so what is the value, again, that's the preeminent value in a values-led foreign policy? If, in fact, as we saw last Friday, that confronting China is the paramount foreign policy objective of the United States today, then why would you give the Chinese such an opening on Ethiopia to bring such a strategically important country closer into Beijing's orbit and push them away? I, again, I'm missing very big things here in how foreign policy decisions are being made in Washington.
2: Well, you know, kind of, I guess, I guess the, the, the counter argument would be, you know, you, you you're looking at it from a quite a kind of realpolitik kind of position, you know, um, in and and from from a kind of frame of of a kind of a new Cold War, and I guess many people would say that that at least what the sanctions indicates is that America isn't repeating some of its some some of its sins of the first Cold War, which is to 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 prop up nakedly kind of autocratic regimes simply because they happen to be anti-communist, right? Kind of which 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 was a, a kind of a feature of of the first Cold War. So so at least. You know, kind of, we we're in a situation where they're objectively looking at the human rights situation in, in Ethiopia and acting accordingly, and not cutting them slack simply because they happen to be also you know important in the fight against China. I think that is valuable to acknowledge. Um, that said, I don't know that these sanctions necessarily ha- will have that much impact. Um, among others, because because Ethiopia you know probably won't face much challenge from the African Union. Uh, they've pre- they've proven pretty pretty impervious to African Union. You know you know, measures so far and the Chinese aren't doing anything. The Chinese have already said that they, you know, they evoke the non-interference clause and they essentially, you know, criticize the sanctions and that's that's where they're ending. So, you know, so in that sense, I don't think that they're necessarily going to change anything on the ground, but in terms of, of the symbolism of where Biden is positioning himself, you know, kind of as, as a foreign policy actor, I'd, I do think there is, there is a, a message there.
1: I guess I'm confused simply because what we hear coming out of official Washington and we heard it on our last show with Charles and also David, who we spoke with on our previous show, is that China is, if not an existential threat to the United States, a paramount threat to the United States. And Biden is coming under now a lot more pressure on China in the, following the release of Meng Wenzhou, the a CFO of Huawei who went back to China and he, he, the Republicans are hitting him hard that he that he's giving up. And the China hawks, if, if, if not just the Republicans, but others are hitting him hard that, he, that he's conceding too much. And so, but here we have an opportunity for a country like Ethiopia, which the United States has said is a geopolitical priority. So maybe you're right. I am looking at it in a very real politic way and maybe I'm channeling some of what the China hawks are saying in Washington, but it just seems like if China is in fact the challenge or the threat that you would not want to again give away easy wins, and and I just I, I guess um, you know these are things that, per, that perplex me. I'm glad for your optimism though. I, I do uh, I do appreciate that. Uh, let's move on very quickly now to the China Africa Trade Expo that got underway on Sunday in Changsha. Couple interesting points about this. Uh, This is the second uh, one of these shows. They're going to sign somewhere around $16 billion in deals. That's kind of a fake headline, by the way. Simply because the Chinese have a pattern of stockpiling a lot of these agreements from throughout the year to have these big announcements at these expos. Last year, they did it at the import expo in Shanghai as well, where they they stockpile these agreements that are done months before, have nothing to do with the expo. But they say, let's bring it to the expo and sign there and they'll put it to the tab and they get this big, giant number that comes out. What I find interesting is, is two things, and I'd like to get your take on this. Number one, we keep coming back to the city of Changsha and Hunan province. And this is a part of the China-Africa relationship that I think is very poorly understood by a lot of people that Changsha in particular is becoming a major hub in the China-Africa network. So just in the past couple of years, we've had these trade expos, we have uh, a lot of agricultural exchanges coming out of the universities there. It's the center for the new cocoa Marketing Center. They also, it's the main point of import for the, the Rwandan chili peppers went through Changsha. They have a brand new rail to sea line that goes from Changsha to Guangzhou that just announced that's going direct to Africa from there. So that's a this new China-Africa trade route coming into Changsha. There's so much happening around Changsha and the Hunan provincial government seems to be really, really keen to foster this relationship and to become a major outpost. So it's not just Guangzhou and Iwu are the two major points that we've talked about to date, but Changsha now is a very major hub on this. And if you're in our newsletter, you notice I keep writing about this over and over. Another thing happened in Changsha today. Changsha, Changsha. So um, just a point that I don't think is very well understood outside of the uh, the kind of the China Africa nerds who follow the stuff closely.
2: I think it also gives a real it's it's a really interesting case study in terms of of how these kind of decisions are made. Uh, you know, so be, you know because frequently you know we see in discussions about China Africa engagement that so much um, that that the the, the Chinese government so the central Chinese government and the the party are given these are frequently kind of given these outsized you know, roles, um, you know, this is a, there's a strong idea that, oh, this this decision was made in Beijing and it's just rolled out, you know, kind of made from you know, centrally, central decision making and then it's rolled out. You know, what, what I think what we're seeing in Changsha is how complicated this this kind of situation actually is because clearly there's been there's, clearly there was some kind of decision making somewhere centrally that Changsha is going to be the centre for this kind of thing but then then the role of the provincial provincial authorities and the, all of these other actors kind of jump jumping in is, is such an interesting kind of case study in terms of, of, of you know, the, this kind of interplay between, between central decision-making, regional decision-making, private versus government, and, 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 then, and then how the Africans kind of slot into it, you know. So, so it's, really, it's really interesting. The other big point, of course, is that they're the only people talking about African trade at the moment.
1: There you go. I'm so glad you brought that up. I am so glad you brought that up. Keep going with that line of thinking.
2: Well, you know, kind of even even as we as we see both the Americans and the Europeans kind of gearing up and talking a lot about infrastructure, it is a little bit this kind of this tendency that we tend that that if you follow China Africa relations, it's, you, you see the Europeans and the the Westerners as a whole kind of picking up on talking points that are like two years. In the past you know um, like by the time that that Western governments pick up on the thing that the china the china Africa kind of space has already kind of shifted um you know and and the the role of trade in in the china africa relationship is is really is really growing. I think and, and growing in, in complexity, and growing in political complexity. And I think we, we'll see that at 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 FOCAC this year. Um, but you know, it is interesting that 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 even as the Chinese are kind of stepping away from large scale infrastructure, we're seeing the Westerners trying to jump into that space. Even as China is kind of moving on to maximizing trade connections. So it's you know it's it's an interesting just kind of like like kind of like point point sample of where we are
1: trade is the word of the day that we're hearing so much more in the run-up to FOCAC. And it is the topic of this trade and economic expo, obviously, because it's about trade. But it's also the fact that you can see that both African and Chinese officials are taking this event in particular very seriously. So the opening keynote address was done by Rwandan President uh, Paul Kagame. Also, uh, China's top foreign ministry official, Yang Jiechi, also gave a keynote address on Sunday. And again, those are Big heavy hitters, and I think that sets the tone for what they're doing here. The organizers say there's 900 companies from 40 African countries that are participating in this year's event. It's happening both online and off. It's a hybrid event because of travel restrictions from Africa into China. And, and but I guess to to your point that you were talking about that they're the only ones talking about trade. I'm going to push that even a little bit further, is that the ideas coming out of Changsha are really dynamic ideas. So we heard a couple weeks ago, we featured a this academic paper about creating a new China-Africa digital currency network, if you will. Obviously, there's this trade network. There's cocoa exchanges. There's coffee exchanges they're talking about building. There's importing of, of chili peppers from Rwanda all through Hunan. And to me, it just expresses an excitement about ideas in China-Africa, which we are not seeing in other countries. And I think that is a very big
2: takeaway from what I'm seeing in Hunan. The other, you know, kind of very broad takeaway that I I take is that, you know, it— you know, is, is that is that so frequently the, the Western perspectives on on China, China's reaction to to African human rights abuses is you know kind of dismisses China's position completely, or just simply you know kind of characterizes that as exporting authoritarianism? Whereas I think there's a lot more complexity there, particularly in relation to the way that China looks at at the connection between development and and post conflict, or you know kind of conflict resolution. So you know, China, and I think this this comes into like Ethiopia as well, is that China is so focused on development and so focused on and frequently happy to to boost development in illiberal or you know kind of actively anti democratic you know contexts, that you know and and frequently China is very criticised by that for Western actors, but at the same time I think anyone who's who's lived in Africa would realise that. That development is everything. you know it's like it you know that, that kind of trade development, even if it's happening within this really illiberal and and frequently outright nasty environment. That development itself still carries value, um, and you know. So, so I think I think that one needs a lot, a, a much more kind of nuanced approach. I think to to this kind of interaction between development, investment, human rights, and then dalliances with awful African governments. Um, you know, I, th- I think I think those that that that, that kind of field needs a, like a really hard rethink, um, because the you know because it's so we, everyone I think from African experience will know how difficult. It is to build any actual democracy if if you don't have any kind of like a a, a pre-existing development base, you know, kind of to build it on, Um, and then therefore China's willingness to 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 engage on development issues, even in really really bad circumstances, you know, kind of from that perspective, has to has to be unpacked. I think you know, kind of, it's not simply a situation of like oh, these these authoritarian cronies, you know, kind of it's all just corruption. You know, that's that's I think an oversimplification of that situation.
1: So let me just bring you up to date on where we are with China Africa trade numbers so far this year in 2021. Uh, for the first 7 months of the year, the two sides have done about 140 billion dollars in trade. That's about 139.5 is the number. And then that's up 40% compared to last year. Last year's a weird year simply because Uh, of COVID-19 and all the disruptions that happened. That being said, last year, even in a COVID year, they did 187 billion total. So they're definitely on track to exceed uh, 187 this year. Xinhua likes to say that so far they're on a record-breaking pace. And a lot of that, of course, is resources coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's raw materials. It's Angolan oil. So the China-Africa trade relationship is highly distorted in the sense that it's concentrated in about 10 African countries, mostly large resource exporting countries. So it's not equitably spread across the continent. And this brings up the key issue that I am hoping African leaders are going to bring up at the trade expo in Hunan and also at FOCAC, which is the question of these massive trade deficits. That is, African countries like Uganda, Kenya, Senegal are exporting in the tens of millions to the low hundred millions and then importing billions of dollars from China. So, what is it going to take, COBUS, to balance out this trade so that there can be a healthier relationship? Trade wise, because right now it doesn't feel sustainable that so much hard currency is going out to buy Chinese products and and very little is coming in.
2: Yeah, no, I mean this is this is Africa's major problem, and and it'll be very interesting to see you know how it's addressed at FOCAC. I think it's interesting to see the prominence of Paul Kagame and Rwanda in in this in this Changcha situation. Um, you know, because obviously you know Rwanda is famously a country with very little natural resources; it's also tiny, um, and yet right at the at you know at, at the forefront of of these kind of trade ties. Um, so it'll be interesting, you know, kind of to. See whether whether the Rwanda model is this kind of like early indicator of something of a of a, of a new kind of trade relationship because it's it's you know it's a very different situation to trade raw minerals that that you know where, where there are essentially finite sources compared to exporting coffee or or chilies or chocolate or you know kind of all of these all of these different agricultural products where there's a lot more opportunity for growth so it's really interesting to see how how
1: that shifts. Well, remember that it was Rwandan coffee that did that. Remember we show, we played that that audio clip of yeah, Rwandan exactly. coffee, being like two tons of Rwandan coffee being sold in like a second on Taobao. And that was exactly. with the Rwandan embassy. And so Rwanda has been very progressive. Ethiopia yeah. and Uganda are also trying to sell coffee as well, which is nice because that's a finished product. So one of the, the keys that we're gonna look at is selling processed goods, not just raw materials, because that increases the value of exports. The key though, is that you, can, you, can, you can't sell that much coffee to balance out billions of trade. So we got to move up the value chain. And what I'd like to see the Chinese do, which I think they're falling short. So a couple of years ago, they did this avocado deal in Kenya to finally allow Kenyans to export avocados into the China market. And what it meant was that all the agricultural and pest control requirements had been met. A year later, only one out of 100 companies that sought to export was approved to do so because of the requirement of flash freezing the avocados. And that equipment purchase was so high that most Kenyan avocado farmers simply couldn't do it. So rather than just sign the deal and say, okay, it's up to you now to export into China, is to sign the deal and then apply some money back to to provide the freezers, to provide the training, even if it's loans, to get them going with it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not just the deal. And that's one of the lessons that I've taken away from the past couple of years of watching these China-Africa trade deals is that the African side is going to need some support in order to facilitate and jumpstart its trade relationship beyond what it's been doing with oil, minerals and timber.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Um I think you know, I think what the, this is this has been true for a as well. I think you know, so so I think this isn't only China's relationship with Africa. This is this indi- indicating Africa's position in the world and so some of the problems that Africa faced to become to enter the kind of the, the greater kind of trade trade zone in the world. But you know, yeah, I completely agree with you.
1: Fair enough. So that uh, China Africa Trade Expo runs through Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday of this week. So we'll maybe touch on that in our Friday edition of the show. But it is something you should keep an eye on because it's yet another thing that's happening in Changsha. And Changsha is increasingly becoming a very important hub. And again, as I said, in the China-Africa network. Let's close our discussion today going back to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Subscribers to the China-Africa project will know that I have just... <laughs> I've gone completely crazy over this story. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. It's so multifaceted. It is happening so fast. So let's go back now to early September and at a Council of Ministers meeting, which is the Congolese equivalent of a cabinet meeting, the president, Felix Chessicati, he called on the public works minister and the mining minister to issue a report on the status of Chinese infrastructure projects and whether they've been built in accordance with the contracts for these resource for infrastructure deals that have been so controversial over the past few months. These are the contracts that Chesikadi wants to review. Let's be very clear again. He is not specifically targeting Chinese companies. He said they are foreign mining contracts. Just so happens that the Means deal, which is the Sino-Congolese deal done between Gekamines, which is the Congolese National Mining Company, and Sino Hydro and a consortium of Chinese companies, that was a $6 billion deal. They are under review. And also the China-Mali deal with the TFM mine, is that's the cobalt mine, that one is also under review. What we have seen all month, and it has been just incredible to watch, is a massive media blitz on the part of the Chinese, where, you know, these are companies that are notoriously shy and averse to the media and transparency, and all of a sudden... There are junkets from Kinshasa for journalists to go and walk through the mines. They've been giving out tons of information every single day in the media. There look to be what I would think are paid media placements from the Chinese mining companies talking about the contributions they've made for corporate social responsibility, the infrastructure they've built, the amount of taxes they've paid. It has just been a blitz. Two, three, four stories a day. Tweets all over the place. Pictures, photos. They're hiring influencers this has been a masterclass in Chinese public relations and public diplomacy in order to pervert the process, sway the process, lobby the process, whatever you want to call it. But boy, I think the Americans could take a lesson from what the Chinese have been doing. The payoff for all of this, Cobus, is the report from those two ministers, the public works minister and the mining minister, were given last Friday. And a lot of people have thought that the Chinese might be on the ropes and the reports largely came back positive from both ministers. Okay, they did acknowledge there were some irregularities, but for the most part, they said that the Chinese are in fact living up to their infrastructure obligations. So they said of the 40 projects in the $6 billion sickle means deal, 27 have been completed, 13 are in development, $825 million so far, has been committed. $3 billion is the total amount of infrastructure. And here's the kicker, Cobus. Here's the kicker $150 million will be spent on new infrastructure this year, and then uh, $300 million will be spent in 2022. So that's almost a half a billion dollars in the next 18 months. That happens to coincide with President Chesekadi's re-election campaign, which will also kick off in eighteen months.
2: Yes, very interesting. Very interesting to see how all these things align. I think the the big lesson for for African um, civil society from all of this is if you have a, a beef with a Chinese company, like complete like like put a megaphone on it you know kind of like shout as hard as you can try and get it into as much media as you can because as if when you hit a, hit a certain kind of kind of like critical mass of, of coverage the chinese will respond um i think that you know that, that that seems to be a lesson from this if you put enough pressure on them then they, they start playing ball um and that pressure has to you know frequently kind of starts off with civil society and local communities and then if you can get a government kind of on, on board then then it, it, it really starts taking off Very interesting.
1: I don't know. I don't know if that's the lesson that I would take away from it, simply because the Chinese are very accustomed to enduring enormous amounts of public pressure. On Xinjiang, human rights, Tibet, Taiwan, yeah, and but, they but, I don't, but I don't those mean those issues. Hong Kong, I, I
2: mean one. particularly African issues. I mean, I mean, like particularly in relation to to like the, the kind of fights that, that African communities and civil societies tend tend to have, civil society organisations tend to have with Chinese companies. So I mean, particularly you know displacement of local communities, environmental damage, you know, kind of bad bad kind of contract making and stuff like that. Particularly,
1: I think if you happen to have a strategic resource that the Chinese value enormously more than anything else that's key to their future economic development, key to their Strategy to confront the United States and technological supremacy in the 21st century. You're going to do great. If you don't have that strategic resource, I think you're kind of screwed.
2: Maybe, but I also think that that what we've seen in the in the long run around stuff like ivory, for example, is that the Chinese are open to be embarrassed, right? Kind of they they're sensitive to embarrassment in, in in Africa, and so therefore, like like a, a coordinated, you know, kind of anti Chinese messaging campaign, even if it's not, you know, obviously when it's related to something strategic like cobalt. It's to put a lot more energy into it, but you know, but but I think even even if it's that isn't the case, like as we saw with Lamu, the the, the coal fired plant there, as we saw with the with the, the activism in Zimbabwe around coal fired plants, they do listen. I think uh, they, they are embarrassable. I think.
1: Well, the key here is that I think the Chinese are more sophisticated in their dealings in the Congo than a lot of people give them credit for. Let's. Remember that many of the people in these mining companies have been there from the beginning for almost 20 years. They know how to maneuver in this highly unpredictable space. There's been a lot of talk that the United States has been whispering into uh, Felix Chessicati's ear and that he's, that the Chessicati government is doing this at the behest of the United States. That may be the case, but there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support that. Again, this is not the kind of thing that people talk about on Twitter. But we have just not heard any evidence, or we've not seen any indication of what the role of the United States is doing. I also, I just don't believe that the US has much leverage in the DRC they used to have a lot of leverage because they plowed enormous amounts of money into the DRC. But I think that the the Americans are not as engaged in the DRC as they once were. And the people around Chessicati, like the ministers, see their political futures at stake with the Chinese mining companies who are critical in funding these election campaigns and and making sure that that money flows to their political interests. So the Chinese do seem to have a, a lot of leverage here. And now let's bear in mind where the leverage sits. So Chessicati has leverage over the Chinese because they need that key resource of the cobalt. But the Chinese also have leverage over Chessicati because he's got a deadline in the form of his election. So they can slow this construction down or they can speed it up. I remember from when I was living in the Congo that uh, Joseph Kabila, he used the cinq chantiers which are the five construction projects as a critical part of his re-election campaign and that's one of the reasons why they rush so much of the construction in the early stage of all of this so you're going to see a lot of that unfold in in the congo over the next few months so both sides have leverage over the others and the geopolitics are absolutely fascinating we're tracking all of the public relations and all of the media Um, Also, Kobus, today we talked about how Huawei has been running into problems in the Congo as well. There's also this question of illegal mining in the Far East. That was another aspect of all of this, not connected to the major state-owned mining companies. How do you see this playing out over the next, say, four to five months?
2: Well, a very interesting data point will be the, a new report that's due soon from the Extractive Industries Transparency, Transparency Initiative, um, which apparently has been leaked online, and it's, it's apparently—I haven't read it yet—but it, it, it's apparently quite critical um, of, of Chinese kind of actors in in, in the Congo. Um, I want, I, you know, best case scenario for me would be if 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 any kind of, you know, I think I think any kind of. Um, like inspection or you know kind of investigation of 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 extractive you know comf- companies and their conduct in the congo if if that starts and stops with Chinese companies, then I think we in we, we have a problem um because everyone knows that many foreign companies have a bad record in the Congo not only Chinese companies um and we, we you know we've seen several reports over the past like linking very prominent you know kind of um device makers and and ex- ex- extractive kind of companies to child labor for example um, you know so so you know kind of it, it can't simply stop with the chinese it has to it has to be all foreign companies actually um, and and we'll see if that actually happens i think that's a, that's a real kind of important hurdle yeah two
1: final points on this that i think are worth noting here is that listen if the upside of all of this is that a half a billion even more money Goes into building infrastructure in the DRC. That's that's a net positive for the the people of the DRC. Let's see if it actually happens. As you pointed out, putting up a tin shed and calling that a dorm is not really infrastructure. So we have to kind of see what the quality of the infrastructure is coming out. That being said, some you know just based on the propaganda that we're seeing coming out of the Chinese embassy and some of the Congolese media, that in my view is clearly running paid Chinese content. Uh, but it is interesting to watch nonetheless. New soccer fields, new cultural centers. New roads, hospitals. I mean, boy, the flurry of activity that's going on is just remarkable. So if there is some good infrastructure that comes out of it, we should be happy about that. Last point on all of this, and it might be that some advisors got to Chesapeake and said, if you don't renegotiate now, in 10 years, the world isn't going to need cobalt anymore because the automakers are doing everything in their power now to try and wean themselves off of cobalt. One, they don't like the fact that they're reliant once again on China, who processes 80% of the finished cobalt comes out of China. Plus, they don't like the fact that their supply chain cannot eliminate child labor if coming out of the Congo. And cobalt is the most expensive part of an electric vehicle battery. So they want, there's a lot of motivation for automakers to get out of, of this business. Bloomberg Businessweek, this past edition, had a whole article, very long report about the post-cobalt future. And so he's got a limited time to cash in on this, and that must, might also be motivating uh, Chessicati to do that. So those are three stories that we thought would be interesting to bring your attention to. This was kind of a throwback, Cobus. I thought it was kind of fun. <laughs> Very fun, yeah. Brings me back to the early days. So if you go back on our website to the episodes from 2010, 2011, 2012, for those first few years, it was just Kobus and I doing it. And when we started the podcast, we had no idea if anybody was going to listen. So we said, we just want to do this for ourselves. And if anybody wants to listen, when great, cool. And it's kind of grown since then, and we really try to have guests and experts. But today we thought it would be fun just to kind of do a retro show just because our guests canceled. And so, uh, but it'd be a good, uh, a good fun way to, to do this every once in a while. So I enjoy these little back and forth, by the way, just for those of you who are familiar with how we do things at the China Africa project, what we've just done for the past hour is basically what Kobus and I do almost every day on, on WhatsApp, just talking. (laughs) So you just got a little peek inside of our, of our dynamic there. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. These topics were drawn directly from our website and our newsletter, and we would love for you to join our growing community of readers. We're working on a new Patreon community as well for our podcast listeners, so we've got some very, very cool things in the pipeline. But uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And we would love to have you part of our reader community. And you'll get 30 days for free. And you can then get all the archives, thousands of articles, all indexed by country, category, keyword. So it's a great resource if you're interested in China-Africa relations. So that'll do it. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode with a guest. But until then, I'm Eric Olander. And for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, thanks so much for listening.
0: This discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Yolanda and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.